Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Peter Lehrman and this is Masters in Small Business M&A. This show is an ongoing exploration into the vast and undercovered world of small business M&A, where we interview both the proven and the emerging owners, operators, investors, and advisors whose strategies and methods for transaction success have been put to the test. The show aims to surface the nuanced intricacies, the key ingredients, and the important factors that can improve your decision-making in your own journey in the world of small business M&A. This podcast is produced by Axial, an online platform that makes it easier for business owners and their M&A advisors to find, research, and privately connect with a diverse mix of professional buyers of small businesses. In addition to learning more about Axial, you can find this podcast show notes, edited transcripts, and many other related resources, all for free at Axial.com. Peter Lehrman is the CEO of Axial. All opinions expressed by Peter and podcast guests do not reflect the views or opinions of Axial. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Podcast guests may have ongoing client relationships with Axial. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for making the time. I'm excited about our conversation. Yeah, let's get into it. Yeah, sounds good. So I think the best place to start, Vinay, is just to go straight at the Weave Growth Partners hypothesis and its reason for being. You and your partners all met in business school, and at least two of the three of you are computer scientists by background. Talk to us about just Weave Growth Partners. What's the core hypothesis and how does it interact with with the lower middle market? Absolutely. Glad to be here, Peter, and appreciate the question. I think when we think about the Weave model and the Weave approach, it really emanated from our observations of technology companies in Silicon Valley. So understanding how well they've done over the past 10 or 20 years, how they've outperformed the rest of the economy was really through capture and utilization of data. And so whether it's you know to refine their products, make a better user experience, these have all been through data. Vishy Venugopalan, one of my partners, really saw this up close during his work at City Ventures when he was investing in artificial intelligence and machine learning startups. Really the, the genesis for Weave was born out of that experience, understanding that AI, machine learning, and frankly, just the utilization of data was coming for the rest of the economy. And we decided to really ride, ride this wave of automation, Silicon Valley kind of practices and playbooks into the middle market. And so that, that's really where it came from, our observation of tech companies. I'd love to just dive into it, like really in all the different sort of nooks and crannies where it where it does exist, where the opportunity is particularly exciting to you. Let's maybe just use some of, so Weave Growth Partners was formed in 2019. Tell us how many businesses are sort of part of the Weave Growth portfolio today? So we have three portfolio companies today. One is a healthcare revenue cycle management business. One is a PEO or HR outsourcing company. And the last one is an e-commerce business focused on the baby market. Okay, great. And so there's some diversity there in terms of the kinds of businesses they are. When you guys think about pursuing like a Silicon Valley incorporation of technology into the way these businesses are run, how much of this is like a, a playbook versus how much of this do you sort of take out a clean piece of paper with each business and sort of lay out your thinking? How much, what's the, the general approach when you guys are looking at companies in terms of the incorporation of tech? Yeah, so so playbook is probably a, a glib way to describe it. But no, you're right. It, it is, there are a set of tools that I would say that have worked effectively within Silicon Valley. 
we absolutely take out a clean sheet of paper. Not only is are each of these industries different, but each company is different, right? So we have to understand what are the potential opportunities that we can take advantage of within this transaction. You know, are there you know certain pieces of their back office that could be automated? You know, where does their sales and marketing infrastructure sit today? In most cases, it's pretty early, let's say, in, in the development and evolution of their sales and marketing. So that's one place where we immediately try to add value pretty consistently across our portfolio companies and even across deals that we look at. Rarely do we come across a, a very refined sales and marketing engine, at least to, to where we'd like to see it. I'd love to hear sort of the different angles of attack for the technology. I mean, it's uh, certainly one is obviously sales and, and marketing. There's obviously the back office, there's recruiting, there's all these different sort of places where you could, in theory, try and study what do the best technology companies in the world do and try and you know insert it all in to these businesses. I'm sure it's a lot easier said than done. And I'm sure, you know, in some cases, maybe that's not true. Maybe there are some really interesting areas where there's just a clear opportunity for low-hanging fruit to be incorporated. But what I'm particularly interested in is just sort of, yeah, hearing a little bit about the different points of entry for the technology. And then I want to go from there into just the receptivity to the change, because a lot of the companies that you guys are are buying are not, they're not Silicon Valley technology companies. I want to talk about that. But first, let's just sort of lay out the map of where you go to sort of bring your capabilities to bear. What, What are the major categories that you guys look at? You can, to your point, look at every single piece of a business, right? And understand how, you know, these really successful technology companies have outperformed in that specific area. But frankly, you know, we only have so much time, so we have to take a more practical approach is what is the area that's going to give us the biggest bang for our buck, right? And nine times out of 10, it's going to start with sales and marketing. When you think about entrepreneurs and business owners, most of them are natural salespeople. And why is that the case? Because if you don't have sales, you don't have a business. And, you know, most of all of our, frankly, I'm thinking all of our owners are great salespeople. And I think there's a reason for that, especially at this, at the stage of growth where they are. Out of all the areas that we look at, sales and marketing rises to the top, I would say nine times out of 10 in terms of importance. Not only does it resonate with the business owner, they get it. You're going to help me grow faster. That sounds great. And so uh, not only, I think, is it something that resonates with the business owner, it's also something that drives value pretty quickly. That's an area that I think is pretty special relative to all the others, frankly. Let's go there for now, because what I'm curious is to get into the specifics of how you guys work there, right? I'm sure that every private equity investment firm that evaluates a company wants to believe that they can improve the sales and marketing capability of that organization, what is it that you think is specific to sort of a Silicon Valley approach to modernizing or technologizing a sales and marketing organization that you think you guys have gotten really specific and, and focused and competent at? Yeah. So at a high level, it, it's taking a relationship-based sales organization and turning it into a repeatable, scalable sales process. That's kind of the overarching objective. Are there challenges along the way? Absolutely. And I think most of them, at least in our experience, this is, I would put this under the category of things we've learned is the cultural. At the end of the day, you have people in the organization who are used to doing things in a specific way, maybe even over a decade or more, asking them to change how they approach sales, sales and marketing in a relatively short time is a big ask. That's probably been 
the biggest obstacle, frankly, that we face within our portfolio companies, just the cultural shift. In terms of what specific, you know, how do we do it? Or it really starts with understanding who the customer is. We talk a lot about with our portfolio companies about customer sense, understanding who the customer is, building customer profiles, understanding why they buy, when they buy, are there specific sales triggers to indicate that they will buy soon, which is all, these are all questions around the customer and their behavior. So it starts there. And I guess like Bezos says, you know, start with the customer and work back, or maybe that was Steve Jobs, start with the customer and work backwards. That's, you know, we're not designing products, but we are designing a sales process. So that that's how we think about it. We'll deploy, you know, I think all of the methodologies that you would expect from SEO to email marketing to SEM, frankly, to even social commerce. The, I think the big, I would say, question in this whole process is, again, understanding the customer. And really, we have to do that in concert with the company. We're not going to just formulate our opinions about the customer. We have to do that by asking the right questions to the sales team and by eliciting, frankly, those answers out of them. These are not questions that they've, frankly, fielded before. So, so starting with the customer and then building out processes and metrics. So a lot of our portfolio companies, they've never measured, at least on a consistent basis. They don't have kind of clean sales metrics and dashboards where they've consistently measured their marketing efforts, the efforts of their salespeople. They're generally measuring an output. They're generally measuring how many deals were closed by a salesperson in a specific month. They're not measuring kind of all the metrics within the sales funnel. They haven't even thought about it as a sales funnel, frankly, previously. So introducing them to a new architecture, at least in their eyes, to how to view sales and marketing, how to turn, again, you know, a relationship-based process into a scalable one that's more data-driven is really the goal. And, and again, the biggest obstacle there tends to be culture. To me, it seems like you're not even really using technology yet at this point. You're just employing a set of practices that are practiced by a lot of Silicon Valley technology companies and, and maybe practices that are employed by a lot of non-Silicon Valley technology companies. Is that correct? Like, do you guys consider that to be like really the process and design stage? You're not even really in, in technology land yet. Yeah, it kind of depends what you mean. If by technology, you mean hiring developers and building out new software, then no, absolutely not. But what we are doing is replacing manual processes with, with software in a lot of cases, right? How quickly are you getting going with that? Yeah, we're, we're starting you know, immediately. Again, it starts with an education and then a cultural shift. So it's not that we're deploying these technologies day one. Some of them we are, but frankly, we're educating often the sales leader on this new sales process or how to think about sales differently and then attempting to scale it over the next, call it six to 12 months. Are you talking about these things pre-transaction or how are you setting up this change? Yeah, so that's a good question. What's interesting, when we're in the process of issuing an offer for a specific company, a big part of our conversation is about our approach and about specific initiatives. So in our LOIs, you know, we're outlining the areas that we would help or that we would be helpful in. And our approach mostly resonates with people, I think, who usually have two characteristics. One is that they're staying with the company, rolling over significant equity and are eager to see the next three to five years. That's, that's one criteria. The second one would be people who know that there's something there, right? There's something with technology that if they embraced it, it would unlock 
you know, kind of the, the next level of growth for their business, but they don't know how to do it or they don't have kind of the internal folks who can steer the ship in the right direction. So if a business owner slash leader fits those two criteria, we're a great fit for them and frankly outcompeted folks on deals that we sourced from Axial. You know, they may have had a higher offer, but our approach resonated more with the seller because they thought, frankly, they could go farther with us. I know you guys got Weave Grow started in 2019, so you don't have like a big, long longitudinal sort of data set yet. But I'm curious, what have you guys, have you tried to sort of quantify and attribute some of the lift that the businesses have generated as a result of your approaches to sales and marketing? And has that been an effort? I would think if you guys were able to quantify that and package it up in a credible way, it would be pretty impactful when you're negotiating LOIs and competing for deals to, to be able to show what you guys are capable of there. No, it's a good thought. I mean, it, it's not something that we've done to date. And you know, frankly, each of these deals, we closed all three of our portfolio companies last year in 2021. So I, I think it's probably early for that, but it's a good thought. And it, and it is, I think, something that would make us co- even more competitive when bidding for opportunities. And ju- just to take one step back, I think the way that we think about a company's, let's call it digital journey, is really in three stages. And I would say all of our companies are in the first stage. There may be one in the second stage, but they're all pretty much in the first stage. And that first stage, the way we think about it, is digitization. The second stage being analytics, and the third stage being automation. So the goal is to get to automation. I'll give you a good example. We have a a healthcare revenue cycle management business where a lot of their, I would say, back office operations are, are more manual and can be automated. This is true throughout all of RCM. The whole industry, I think, is going to go through a wave of automation. I think in some ways, there's a race to automate. One of the things that we're doing, frankly, along with our sales and marketing that we talked about before, is starting to think about ways where we can automate pieces of the operation. So what does that do that not only makes it more efficient, so you know fewer people can serve more clients, it also reduces error. When you think about revenue cycle management and working with insurance companies, those errors can add a lot of bloat to the business and take up a lot of time from, from folks who are doing medical billing. So what would be the tasks there, like specifically with that RCM business? Tell us a little, let's dive in on the RCM business for now. Like what are the items or the activities or the tasks that are being done now in a manual way? Just what is the surface area that is got the potential for the automation? Where does it show up? Yeah. So I would say, you know, one big area is frankly in the coding itself. So ensuring that when a physician chooses a specific code for a specific service, that coding is being done correctly. So, so that's one area, making sure that the coding is done correctly. The other is in denials management. So when an insurer does deny a claim, managing that denials process. So right now there's some internal software that's built, but still much of it is done in a manual way. So automating that denials management to at least see if you have a large enough data set, you can kind of understand based on this coding, what trends are we seeing, which types of claims are being denied. And then you can start to predict why are those claims being denied? What is it about that? And you can start to predict maybe common mistakes that are made in that denials management process. If the same claim is being denied over and over again, but maybe it's throughout with different people throughout the organization, maybe as one human, you can't see that, right? It's not readily apparent to you that this specific 
claim is being denied over and over. But taken across the thousands of people that are working on this, if you can aggregate that data and do it over time, you can start to glean insights from that and make the whole the whole operation more efficient. When you think about the next step that you would take in automating something like that, are you guys looking at off-the-shelf software that has been pre-built and pre-packaged by an organization to handle denials management automation? Sounds crazy, but you know there's a lot of software niches out there. Or is that an example of something where you guys would be you know, developing your own layers of code within the organization and developing some of your own homegrown applications to, to automate? Yeah, maybe put one way out. I would say that we're not in the technology development business. We're in the technology application business. And so we don't want to get into a situation, ideally, if we can avoid it, where we're hiring developers to create new pieces of technology. Ideally, this already exists. And that's part of the reason that we're constantly kind of staying on top of new technologies, whether they be kind of across sectors or within a specific sector, because it's a lot easier, cheaper, more efficient to apply technologies that already exist, as opposed to starting from zero and developing new technologies. And frankly, that's, you know, even going back to the sales and marketing approach, we're applying existing technologies. We're not trying to develop new technologies. It's a very, we're not trying to, I suppose, turn our portfolio companies into technology companies. We're trying to enable them with technology. What's the analytics piece that sits in between phase one and phase three? Tell us more about that. Yeah, so a lot of our businesses, or I should say two out of the three are B2B. So one good example is, frankly, just understanding, well, let me use our HR outsourcing business as an example. So they have a a master workers' compensation insurance plan. And there are a lot of claims that happen in in workers' compensation from individual employees. Understanding kind of trends with severity and frequency of those claims, the types of claims, how quickly they can be resolved. You know, if you can capture that data and analyze it, potentially you could work to prevent some of these common claims, whether that's putting a safety manager on site for a specific company, whether that's addressing the problem immediately so that it doesn't turn into a long-term disability. Those are really the types, I would say, another good example is understanding when a client, if there are telltale signs of a client churning off, right? So if a client makes certain actions, maybe it's via specific emails to the service staff, maybe it's through some other data that you capture through a large enough data set, if you can kind of understand or analyze specific trends or triggers that lead to a client leaving, then maybe you can start to take some action to address those problems before they actually play out. It's conceptually, like the use of technology to make these businesses better is a conceptually quite straightforward and graspable idea, whether it's digitization, analytics, or or automation. It always probably ends up being harder than the concept articulates itself. What can you tell us there? I mean, what, I know you, you know, you haven't been doing this for decades, right? But what can you tell us about what you've learned there? How are you guys getting better and more discerning at, at figuring out what the real opportunities are versus the, the sort of misleading shiny objects that, you know, that aren't necessarily so, so promising? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, certainly one obstacle we've already talked, touched on, which is culture internally. The other obstacle, which, which you're alluding to, is you can kind of become enamored with technology and not necessarily focus on the areas that will deliver value within a reasonable amount of time. 
you know, I think in terms of being enamored with a specific technology, I don't think we've, fingers crossed, you run into that issue as much. We're pretty practical when it comes to the application of technology. And we try to focus on areas that we know will deliver value in short order. We do have, for the most part, five-year time horizons. So not only do we have to implement this technology, but we have to see it play out. And five years you know, may sound like a long time, but it can go by pretty quickly. We're already you know, past a year in our first investment into year two. So, so I think we're pretty practical, I would say. Are we exploring new technologies down the road? Absolutely. You know, we're always, the ones I mentioned to you are ones that you no doubt implemented Axial and are very familiar with as it relates to sales and marketing. But we're also looking at new technologies uh, to see what's coming down the pipe. I hope you're right. <laughs> we got we're using some pretty old stuff around here still. No, I hope you're right. I think the, the culture piece is interesting, right? It's none of these ideas get implemented by themselves, right? They get implemented by people or they don't get implemented by people or they get implemented poorly or they get implemented partially. What well, maybe on a no-names basis or something, Vinay, could you just take us inside the work of the firm introducing technologies to organizations that are not familiar with them? What do those conversations sound like? What are the points of resistance? How do you guys manage your way through them? What have you done so far? Just because, you know, for this thesis to really work, you really have to be good at introducing something, things that are fundamentally novel to an organization, right? If the organization already has an incredible sales and technology growth stack, and they've got a bunch of engineering-driven automation on the back end, and they have incredible BI and visualization tools, then your opportunity to potentially be a really differentiated partner to them is less clear to them, right? And so by definition, every target company that you guys are going to be excited about is probably a target company that is relatively low on the sort of technology application implementation spectrum. And that's part of your opportunity set. But that that creates some of these potential sort of recurring cultural and adoption risks. So I'm sure you guys are getting better and better at that with every single business. But just give us give us an inside look at sort of what that's been like. I would slightly amend your thesis there. Of, I think in general, is there lots of opportunities with a company that has not deployed much technology? Absolutely. Are there opportunities with a company who's maybe in stage two and is moving to stage three? Absolutely. Too. So I don't think there's no point at which you said, I'm done with technology. There's no A plus at the end of your road. So I think there's always opportunity. And, and frankly, within those businesses that are more progressed, in a lot of ways, to your point, it is easier because they've made the cultural transition to one of technology adoption. So on that point, I, I totally agree. And what we've encountered in terms of cultural resistance it's been more, if you're a salesperson who's worked in an organization or in an industry for 20 years, and you've done things in one specific way, no matter how open-minded you are, and I would say the vast majority of people we work with are pretty open-minded, frankly, it's still difficult to change your behaviors that you've refined over 20 years. And it's worked pretty well over that period of time. So understanding how to work differently in six month period when you've been doing things the same way for 20 years is a big act. You can't overwhelm a team with change, but you can paint the picture of the direction you're going in 
why it's better for the company and why it's better for that salesperson or that individual, whoever it is. I think you do have to make the case why it's better because, you know, I think you said it well, Peter, there, it's not just about technology adoption. You can implement technology really poorly. So you can say, you can do all the things I talked about, but you can just do it really poorly. It's not, did you implement it? Did you not implement it? It's, you know, how did it go? How did you implement it? And so that I think is one of the reasons that owners like working with us because we can help them implement it really well and make sure that it drives results. Culture, I think, will always be a challenge. And again, it is one we underestimated at first. There's no doubt about it. But I do think, you know, we're learning and I think we're getting better at that initial communication, which I think is critical to kind of changing the mindset and communicating why, again, it's in their interest to adopt technology and to become more efficient. Where's that conversation happening? Is that happening with the CEO or the owner? Or is that happening with a sales leader? And who's having those? How does that change in point of view? How does it happen? Is it happening through face-to-face conversations or you know, Zoom calls? Like just wh- where, what is the theater in which this change is taking place? It's a good question. The short answer is it's taking place at every level. The first conversation is undoubtedly with, but in many cases, you know, the CEO has many priorities and isn't necessarily a, a technology guru. And so it's incumbent on us in concert with them to kind of educate the rest of the staff. And so it certainly starts with the CEO, then the sales leader, then the salespeople. And it can't just be a one-off conversation, right? You're not going to change the way somebody works going forward in one conversation. It's got to be an evolution and an education over many months. And so I think, again, that's probably somewhere where we can improve is because many times I think a lot of people, you know, make the same mistake of, okay, we explained it once. Okay. So everybody gets it. We're all on the same page now. That's not how human beings work. It, It takes a while to accept kind of a new way of doing things and to understand why they're doing it in the first place. That's probably something that we'll, I think, start to improve on as we move forward. You know, just taking time with the education process and figuring out ways to explain it, maybe in better ways than we have previously. So that's definitely an area that we want to continue to improve in. Since we seem to agree that a lot of the secret sauce is in the implementation and how things are implemented, does that mean you're sort of comfortable sharing some of your favorite sales and marketing applications by name? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. For sure. I mean, we love HubSpot as a CRM. I think um, a lot of people do, which is why their company continues to grow. And I would say I would just differentiate that with with Salesforce as an example, especially for a lower middle market company. The customization required in Salesforce, you know, it's just a lot more and it's a lot more expensive in the long than something that's a little more lightweight and a little more flexible as HubSpot is. But yeah, no, we have a ton of recommendations for, it, it depends on the company too. I wouldn't say our tech stack I would say HubSpot's probably, you know, a common theme, but outside of that, there are definitely one of the things we go in thinking about is what should the tech stack look like, you know, within each of our portfolio, I should say before we close. You know, I would say a good example of one that's further down this digitization journey is our e-commerce business. They had a modern tech stack. They started the business in 2016, which is why it's a much more modern company. If you started in 1980, you'd have to upgrade your tech stack a couple of times, right? Through, whereas, you know, you started in 2016, a lot of these things were already built. Shopify was already around, which is a great e-commerce platform. So yeah, the journey is not necessarily at the very beginning, like it is for many lower middle market, removing 
more towards analytics and automation. And so, so yeah, e- each company is different in terms of where they are. We absolutely take out a clean sheet of paper and we map out what the low hanging fruit is, where we can make impact. It's not just us doing it by ourselves. We're doing it in concert with the business owner. We want to make sure they're bought in because there's no way we're changing the culture without them. So it's an important part of the process. I'd be interested to hear like the time intensity of this kind of work for you guys as the principles of Weave Growth Partners. You know, you can't just buy a HubSpot and leave it on the side of the road with the management team that doesn't necessarily have any experience implementing the product, doesn't even know if they're bought into using it to begin with. Is the implementation of a lot of your capabilities and your expertise, how much time are are you, Vinay, or other members of the team spending on doing this work as opposed to just getting the buy-in for the work to to take place? Like, how, How deep do you find yourselves going to really get this stuff done right and, and to really get this stuff to take hold. I'm just interested to hear what kind of time intensity, if somebody you know wants to go and duplicate the weave model, like what do they need to be ready to, what do they need to be ready to sign up for in terms of time intensity, making some of these pretty significant changes? Yeah, it's a good question. I would say the first six to 12 months are, are probably the most intense and you run the risk in doing any of this, you don't want to serve, you don't want to replace a business function. You don't want to be necessary to the business. And so, you know, they have employees. The goal is for to run with these initiatives, right? But it's hard to run with these initiatives until they see them play out a little. So we do have to, I suppose, start the train and give it some momentum before we can fully hand it off. And so that's the real that's where the, I would say the majority of the work happens, right? Actually starting the processes, getting them moved. And then at some point we have to hand them off and that's a gradual process too. But we absolutely want, whether it's the sales leader or another employee, we want them to be with us through every step of the journey. This is not a case where the three of us go out on an island and, and build something and bring it back. Absolutely not. We're working hand in hand with specific people at the very beginning saying, you own this and we're helping to kind of bring this into fruition. So we, you definitely have to be careful about not taking over critical business functions. Absolutely. I think in the world of sales and marketing and, and the technology that's piled into the category out of Silicon Valley, I mean, there's so much, there's so much technology. There's so many crowded categories with good software in them to to choose from. And then there's the implementation and then the maintenance and the customization of of them. And there's obviously been this creation of a business operations or a revenue operations function inside a lot of a lot of technology companies. Do you find yourselves thinking about sales and marketing in that context? Do you think, you know, do you underwrite an investment where you're typically creating like incremental amount of headcount needing to come into the business so that you guys after the 12 month period are not dependent and and tied into the functioning of the changes that you've brought into the organization like do you underwrite a, a bigger cost structure that hopefully has more operating the short answer is no we don't but we also don't underwrite kind of the other side of that which is 50% growth or you know whatever you want to say so we're not underwriting that i would say two things on that front one we want to buy businesses that if we did nothing, would be great. That's just fundamental. We think that whatever we do should just drive out performance. It shouldn't drive performance. That's one piece. 
The second piece is that we don't want to completely change the business overnight, frankly, because of the, the cultural element. If we were to kind of bring in a completely new kind of revenue slash growth team internally, you know, I think there'd be a shock to the system. We want to do it in a gradual way where kind of, you know, people see the light and and the process happens over a period of time. That means two things. That means we're not going to add a ton of headcount because at the end of the day, we want to build process first and we can be helpful with that. And then we're also maybe if we did that, maybe we'd, you know, achieve growth rates even faster potentially. But we don't want to, a business is such a delicate organism, I think in many cases, whether it's the clients or the employees or the morale, we're very sensitive to the internal functionings of what's been done for such a long period of time. We do have a certain level of respect, not only for the entrepreneur and owner, but also for everybody that's been there that built a business that we're frankly attracted to. So there's a balance. There's absolutely a balance of respecting what is and trying to bring them along uh, this path of, of what could be. You guys seem to be quite cognizant and sensitive to the change here. The reputation of private equity is not necessarily to be so so sensitive to that. Is that a reputation that you think, is there a generational sort of changing of the guard that you think might be happening in private equity? You guys were all young, young next generation sort of emerging, you know, investment professionals in the private equity category. Do you think there'll be a changing of the guard over the next little while and private equity sheds some of its lever up, do whatever you want, pay out dividends and just how are you guys thinking about that? Because you seem to be quite cognizant of the complexity of change, the rate of change. Yeah, I'm curious what you think about what could happen more broadly if there's a lot of people acting like you guys. Uh, that's a really good question that I had not had not thought of previously. You know, I think there's probably two dynamics there. You know, one is potentially age-related or generation-related. I think the other is also just the market in terms of we're lower middle market if in terms of the larger buyouts, I think, frankly, in a lower middle market company, there's a lot more humanity there, frankly. It's a smaller company. The founder is still there. They've had the employees for 20 years. You're not seeing that at a large company, right? Where it's a little more, there's a lot more bureaucracy. There's more org charts than, <laughs> than there need to be. And so I think that's a big difference, right? Some of that is related to the fact that we're in the lower middle market. And then I think you're right. You know, there is a piece of, we have an enormous amount of respect, again, for these founders, for these operators, because we've all been there and it's a really hard job and you can't be an expert. And that's why we're there to help them with technology. They're experts in their domains. They may be even experts at managing people, but we're experts in technology and that's or that's why they find it so compelling to partner with us. Yeah, so I think we're excited about working with management, not against them. We think, I mean, you've seen this over the past 10 or 20 years of how millennials have completely changed the economy in terms of more humane, softer side to capitalism. I think that's true. And I think you see it playing out, especially after the financial crisis. I was there in New York when it happened. <laughs> I remember it fondly. And you definitely seen it after 2008, 2009. A lot of things have changed, whether it's ESG or just people being more, I would say, conscious about their capitalism. There's been a major shift. And there's also been a shift in technology. As you say, the rate of change has just accelerated dramatically. Doing what we do, I think, will become even more crucial for businesses over the next few years. And that's why we're continuing to kind of stay plugged in to Silicon Valley, to venture, to new technologies, 
because things change extraordinarily quickly. And if we can help our portfolio companies be ahead of that change, then I think we'll all do really well. Well, let's talk about two more topics while we have the time. I guess first one is, how do you guys think about, given your expertise, given the place where you like to be positioning yourself as a partner to a company, what are you doing in the sourcing process to try and identify businesses that play well to to what you can bring to the table? Have you guys figured out rules of thumb, good questions to ask, other methods or techniques by which you can begin to form a point of view on the opportunity to partner through the technology vector, among others, right? But I know that that's central for you guys. Like, how is that going? How hard is it for you to figure out the technology leverage opportunity? And what are you learning there? No, it's a good question. I would say we literally, I just had a conversation with the, with the business right before, right before this conversation. And within some of their materials, they talk about the application of a specific technology and the fact that they're just at the start of it. And that COVID really forced them into the, the adoption of this technology and they want to scale it out. It's interesting. We were formed in 2019. COVID happens in 2020. It just accelerates the adoption of technology to such a degree that we no longer have to convince people or convince business owners that the adoption of technology can help them take their business to the next level. I remember at the the back half of 2019, we were having conversations with businesses trying to explain what we do. It's a very different conversation now here in 2022. There's not as much explanation required. Everybody gets it. COVID has completely changed, I think, how business owners I would say it's changed the relationship between business owners and technology. That's obviously a boon for us because, you know, that's kind of the direction, you know, we've been leaning the whole time. So I'd say in that way, COVID's made our job easier. And so again, we'll see it in the documents or from the banker about how they, their growth opportunities are focused on adopting this specific technology and they need help. They just started doing it. And, and so for us, there's not a whole lot of, you know, digging. It's right there. It's right front and center. In their thought process, in their thought process. So that's been great to see. Maybe the last question is just about technologies. Like, what are if you had to pick? Not more than two technologies or fields of technology that you're spending a lot of time understanding and understanding the commercial and practical applications of it, or the potential sources of leverage that it could create for lower middle market businesses. What are you excited about right now? What are you studying? What are you trying to learn more about when you think about technology and its potential intersection with lower middle market business operation? That's just a great question. And I think if you asked each of us, we would probably give you different answers. So we're all, you know, we're all looking at different pieces of technology. I think probably Vishy would tell you about AI um, technologies within specific sectors. My, I think, personal interest and focus has been on a lot of blockchain technologies. I think that's really early right now, but you know, eventually we'll have application over the next few years. So each of us are focused on different areas, but those are probably two of the bigger ones. I would say AI and blockchain. What are some of the thoughts that you have related to blockchain? Like, how are you thinking about that? Like, where, even if it's not, maybe it's ten years away, right? But like, where do you go when you think about blockchain and the application of blockchain for lower middle market businesses? It'll start in specific industries, right? And you're already seeing within companies that are that have diehard fans 
Harley Davidsons of the world. I think the old saying is, you know, you make 80% of your revenue from 20% of your uh, customers, a Pareto rule. The application of whether it's tokens for your business or NFTs or some type of monetization that where your customer becomes kind of a user slash owner only makes that connection stronger, enables them to participate in the growth. You're seeing all these, quite a few brands and media companies experiment with these technologies. You're seeing Coca-Cola experiment with supply chain, kind of using the blockchain uh, for its supply chain. You're obviously seeing everybody on Wall Street get into crypto. It depends on the sector. I think it'll have consequences and utility for each sector. Within financial services, I think it's pretty straightforward. If you're a registered investment advisor, basically giving access to digital assets to your customers, that's probably the use case that's here today. The others, I think, will take a while, but it's coming and, and we want to be we want to be aware of it. And we're excited to see kind of applications. It'll start with, with the Fortune 1000 companies, but it'll eventually move its way down, like all new technology, to the middle market and lower middle market. And frankly, we want to be there. We want to see it in practice and we want to be able to apply it when the time comes. Yeah. I would think given the businesses that you guys own so far, the opportunities for, for AI to become a part of how a revenue cycle management business operates itself or AI for your e-commerce businesses, things like that. I would think that there's pretty wide a range of array of applications in AI. I think blockchain's a little bit harder to see. For me, it's a little harder to see. I think AI seems to be, I don't know if it's AI versus just good software. Machine learning, yeah. More machine learning. Right. But you, you certainly see a lot of applications for that in sales and marketing, prioritization of territories, optimization of Salesforce productivity. There's just a lot of opportunities there within AI, I'm sure. Yeah, we're, and we're looking in industry-specific AI because that's, that's where it is today. There, there are lots of AI startups within the healthcare space, within financial services, within insurance. So I think obviously RPA is, is big and getting bigger within certain industries. So we think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of room for automation and AI. We're actually very interested in the insurance industry, which, is, which has a lot of outdated processes and a lot of potential for you know, robotic process automation or, or AI. So that's one sector that, that we, we've been hunting around in for a while and are hoping to find something. Well, Vinay, this has been great. I've learned a ton and it's really interesting to hear how you guys are approaching the lower middle market. And it's great to see people with advanced degrees in computer science arriving in the lower middle market. I've been waiting for this day for a long time. <laughs> I think it can be a great source of, of competitiveness and competitive advantage over the next five to 10 years. So it's, it's great to get to know you and, and get to know the Weave Growth Partner story a little bit better. I'm excited to see what you guys do in the next handful of years. And thank you so much for spending some time with me today. Well, thanks, Peter. Appreciated the conversation. Yeah, you bet. Take care. All right, bye. If you enjoyed this episode, check out Axial.com. There you'll find every episode of this podcast, as well as our recorded Axial member roundtables, some downloadable tools for dealmakers, Axial's quarterly league table rankings of top small business acquirers and investment banks, and lots of other useful content that we've created over the course of time. If you're interested in joining Axial as either an acquirer, an owner considering an exit, or as a sell-side M&A advisor, you can get started for free at Axial.com as well. Lastly, if you have ideas for podcast show guests, feel free to reach out to me directly at peter at Axial.net. I promise I will respond. Thanks for listening.